Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. So we're in Genesis chapter 39 today. Genesis chapter 39. We finished up Genesis chapter 38 last time. And uh, some of the things that you'll remember from Genesis 30... Look, Esther's already filling it in. She's doing it right in front of my face. (laughs) (laughs) On purpose, even. That's right. (laughs) She's a little troublemaker. (laughs) Genesis chapter 38 was uh, the one that we wrapped up last week. And you remember Genesis chapter 38... By the way, you can tell I'm, I'm already I'm amped. I come from a Pentecostal background. You probably can't tell that because I'm pretty mellow most of the time. But i got to tell you, as I was preparing for this, there were parts in my mind I was picturing myself yelling. And I didn't even know I was getting loud. <laughs> Mike's going to close the door. Lauren's going to stand up and go, hallelujah. Okay, I'll slow down. All right, so uh, Genesis chapter 38 was last time, and you remember that that was all about Judah and Tamar, all right? And their Canaanite friend that was mixed into the middle of it as well. Oh, and his Canaanite wife as well. We wrapped that chapter up, and that chapter came in the section, the bigger section that has to do with Joseph. In that study, uh, Tamar ends up acquiring from Judah the cord, the signet, and the staff. And they had signet rings, and then they had cylinders that were finely engraved, and you could roll them over, say, a wax seal. And it would impress upon it, this belongs to me. And in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is, it, it, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's as if God says, this belongs to me, on you, on me, on us. God is saying, this belongs to me, and he puts his mark on us. All right, so that's kind of a, a reminder of that. So that was Genesis 38. Now we're getting back to Joseph. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 37, verse 36, the very last verse, somebody mind reading that one. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and captain of the guard. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Who's the him? Who's he talking about? Joseph. Joseph. Exactly right. Now, go over to 39, verse 1. Somebody mind reading that. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bore him from the Ishmaelites, who had taken him down there. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriela. So as you can see from this verse, chapter 39, verse 1, we're picking up right where we left off at the end of 37. So that 38 was stuck in there in the middle of the narrative, the larger narrative that has to do with Joseph. Okay? So turn your focus now on Joseph, because that's who we're going to be following pretty much for the rest of the book of Genesis. I mean, Joseph is going to be the key figure in in the rest of what we're going to see here. Now, I should tell you that in in verse 1 right here, as we're going to unpack this verse a little bit, Potiphar, that name Potiphar, it's uh, an Egyptian name, and it means he whom the god Ray has given. All right, so his name has incorporated with it an Egyptian deity. All right, so he whom the god Ray has given. 
And uh, what you see here now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. Some of you have different translations, though. You'll find different things depending on how your translation committee wanted to go with the, uh, translating these words. Some of your translations, the words that are translated through here can have other meanings. Some of the other meanings have to do with things like an officer or it literally means he who belongs to the king. And a lot of times when this word is translated in the rest of the Tanakh, in the rest of the Old Testament, you find it's translated as eunuch. All right, Does it, is there anybody here that doesn't know what a eunuch is? A eunuch, I'll just throw it out there. A eunuch is a person who is castrated, either voluntarily or, or against their will. All right, And usually if, you have, if you're a king, you have somebody working for you, hey, I don't want him sleeping with all my harem, you know, so I'm going to make sure to see that that doesn't happen. All right, So you would have eunuchs often working for a king. Uh, we don't know that he was a eunuch. That's just one of the ways it can be translated. There's some discussion whether or not he was. Um, but it kind of provides an interesting possibility as the story unfolds and when we get to verse 7 next week. So unpacking this a little bit further, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, that very first phrase right there. This is actually the start or the next step in the fulfillment of chapter 15. Go to chapter 15, verse 13. Chap- Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. God making promises. What does it say there in Genesis 15, verse 13? Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Now we know what land that is. What land is that? It's Egypt. We know that because we get the whole text right in front of us, right? We could read through it. Every year we get reminded we know this is Egypt. Mm-hmm. What we're reading today, Genesis chapter 39, the original audience for this, all right, This is Moses coming out of Egypt, leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. In fact, the first generation rebelled against God. This is the second generation. Why were our parents in Egypt? This answers that question. It begins to answer that question. Well, it's because Joseph went down to Egypt, but it also does something else. It shows you that God is working out his plan. God had told in Genesis chapter 15, I've got this oversight of this big plan, and I know what's going to happen, and your people are going to go down to this land. The land is Egypt. Your people is going to be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their descendants, and this is starting to happen. All right? Do you suppose Joseph wanted to go to Egypt? No. No. Did he volunteer? No. No. Was he forced to go? Yes, he was forced to go. Do you suppose he was leaving his comfort zone? Yes, he was leaving his comfort zone. His brothers sold him to these Ishmaelite traders, sent him on the way. Esther's already got it filled in. Let's see if she got it right. Seat of application. Sometimes being forced out of our comfort zone allows God to move us into a bigger promise. Sometimes being forced out of our comfort zone allows God to move us into a bigger promise. We find that in life where sometimes we are forced into a situation. We don't want to go. We didn't volunteer to be here. I don't want to be a part of this. It's outside my comfort zone. God can still use that. And then Genesis chapter 39 verse 2. Go ahead and flip back to Genesis chapter 39, verse 2. I'll go ahead and read this one. You read along with me. Make sure my version actually agrees with yours. Here's what mine says. And Joseph was all alone, betrayed by his brothers, sold and sent off as a slave, forgotten and without hope in a foreign land. He was surrounded by strangers. He didn't understand anyone, and no one understood him. Every night he sucked his thumb while he cried himself to sleep. And every day he refused to leave his bed because he was so depressed. Joseph came to the inevitable conclusion that either God wasn't real or else God had forgotten or abandoned him. Is that what yours says? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I read Stephen me a scowl like, how could you even? (laughs) 
Oh, I'm sorry. I must have been reading from, from the not-so-good news version or something. Yeah. <laughs> How depressing, right? But who would blame him? I mean, that's what we would expect to read. You know, you can expect that human nature being such as it is, that if you're in Joseph's position, if you're in Joseph's place, you know, you're in a string of slaves getting ready to be sold on the auction block. Uh, that sounds like a great time for a pity party. All right. But we have no record that Joseph was ever depressed at this point, that Joseph had decided God wasn't real or that God had forgotten him. We have no record that Joseph is going through any of that stuff. In fact, what does it say? Verse two, chapter 39, verse two says this. The Lord was with Joseph and he was a successful man and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. It's the exact opposite of what we would expect to read. It sounds like God's taking care of him. And Joseph seems to recognize it. He seems that his circumstances, despite being sold by his brothers, and that would be hard enough to swallow, mm-hmm. really? Mm-hmm. That you guys hated me so much you sold me to be a slave? Mm-hmm. How bad does your family have to be off to, <laughs> to find that your siblings sell you as a slave and send you to a foreign land? I can tell my daughter she doesn't have it so bad, right? <laughs> That's yeah. right. She doesn't yeah. have it so bad. Yeah. That's exactly right. By the way, the use yeah. of the word Lord here. This is Yahweh, yod heh vav this is the Tetragrammaton, this is Jehovah, this is the unpronounceable name of God that you see right here. And in this chapter, in chapter 39, we're going to run across Yahweh, we're going to run across the Lord quite a few times. After that, silent. For the rest of the book of Genesis until chapter 49, Yahweh is not mentioned again, but he's mentioned heavily in this chapter. And I'll make another comment on that as we go, all right? So Joseph, uh, he's sold and he's bought by a successful, powerful man. I imagine something like this. Maybe if Joseph was keeping a diary, then it might sound like something like this. Dear diary, I'm sorry I haven't written in a while, but I've been so busy with my new job. You see, my brother sold me as a slave bound for Egypt. I thought I would get assigned outside in the hot sun building a pyramid or something like that. But instead, I'm working indoors for a very important assistant to the Pharaoh himself. You know, when the brothers sold him, they probably thought... Done with that guy. Never going to see him again. He's going to die carrying bricks up to the up the side of a pyramid, right? They're probably thinking because of the labor projects. By the way, the timing of this, Egypt is arguably at its zenith, all right? This is the golden age of Egypt. Building projects big time, all right? Slaves, yeah, bring them. Bring your slaves wherever you can get them. We'll buy them. We'll put them to work, all right? We got lots of building projects. Uh, so, yeah, he's heading down to Egypt as a slave. He's probably thinking, that's going to be my fate. I'm going to die in the mud pits or carrying bricks. But instead, he's bought by an, an important and powerful man who's well-connected. The ESV Study Bible says this, Right at the outset, God's presence with Joseph is unambiguously affirmed. Although God never speaks directly to him, as he did to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph's life in Egypt is governed by God's providential care. God never speaks directly to Joseph. Anybody else in that same group? I've never heard God audibly speak to me. God speaks through his word. We definitely have that as a benefit. All right. But as far as, uh, yeah, I'm, I can identify with Joseph. But even though God may not speak to you audibly, can you tell God is taking care of you? You can. You can tell it. God's taking care of you. Uh, I I imagine that Joseph is probably uh, feeling much like Isaiah. Isaiah later writes in chapter 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. This is God speaking, right? Through Isaiah, uh, the prophet, as he's writing this. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
That's the same God who's taking care of Joseph. It's the same God who's working through Isaiah and his pen. Same God that you and I serve. Is God able to take care of us even though we never hear him audibly speak? Yes, absolutely. Uh, One from the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Joseph, fearful. What can man do to me? I don't care. God's taking care of me. God's watching over me. Man cannot do anything to me without God's permission. All right. Like I mentioned, the Tetragrammaton shows up seven times in this chapter. And then pretty much silent for the rest of of what we're going to see until we get to chapter 49. There's going to be one additional mention. Victor P. Hamilton brings to my attention regarding that. He says, the presence of Yahweh uniquely in chapter 39 is not to be explained by appeal to the presence of variant literary traditions. Rather, the name Yahweh occurs here at what is the most uncertain moment in the life of Joseph. His future hangs in the balance. He is alone in Egypt, separated from family, vulnerable, with a cloud over his head. Or is he alone? Joseph is not really alone. Yahweh is with him. There is no doubt about Yahweh's presence with Joseph from this point on in the narrative. There is no doubt that God is with him from this point on, as would be the case in your life. If you're walking with God, no doubt that God is with you. doesn't have to speak in your ear. Hey, I want you to apply for this particular position. Hey, here's what I want you to name your kid. Hey, you, you don't need to hear that to know that God is with you. Seed of application that we've got there. Though your circumstances may be truly depressing, that doesn't necessarily mean that God has forgotten or abandoned you. Though your circumstances may be truly depressing, that doesn't necessarily mean that God has forgotten or abandoned you. How many of you could say, like me, that there are times when I feel like God has forgotten me? God, did you see where I'm at right now? Has it escaped your notice, the situation I'm in right now? Have you abandoned me? Have you forgotten me? Oh, I hope God notices me as he's looking out over the world. Eventually his eyes will come back to me and he'll see where where I'm at in this position I'm in. And God, please save me. No, God hasn't forgotten you. God hasn't abandoned you. Maybe he's working out something out. Maybe a bigger promise out in your life. Chapter 39, verse 3. And his, this is Joseph, and his master saw that the Lord was with him. Joseph's master, Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with him. Now I get it. You know, Potiphar's a Christian, and, you know, it takes a Christian to recognize the work of God in somebody's life. What's wrong with that? Potiphar's not a Christian. Potiphar's a pagan. (laughs) Okay? His name has a pagan deity stuck right in the middle of it. All right? And he notices God is with Joseph. Here's what I would say. A seed of application. If the Lord is with you, that first word there, that first blank is the word if. If the Lord is with you, it should be evident to others. Esther's probably got obvious. I was thinking about obvious. Yeah, that one I got. (laughs) I got the if right. If, If the Lord is with you, it should be evident to others. If the Lord is really in my life, people should be able to tell. The Preacher's Outline Study Bible says this, Joseph was not wallowing around in self-pity. He was not lashing out against the world and cursing God because he had been so badly mistreated. Neither should we, no matter how terrible our circumstances and trials. That second part of that phrase in in verse 3, that second part of the verse, 
the first part says, and his master saw that the Lord was with him. The second part says, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. It sounds like Joseph is engaging in a strong work ethic, right? Ephesians 6, 5 through 8 would commend us to do the same. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. We should be doing our jobs as if our supervisor is, is not the guy that sits in the office with the window. As if our supervisor is God himself. All right, We should be doing it as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. You ever see the person, they're playing uh, a game on their computer, and then you know the supervisor walks in. They're like, click, 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 get rid of the solitaire, get rid of the minesweep. You know? The way that they're behaving is one way outside of the presence of their supervisor, and another way in the presence of their supervisor. When God would say, I see everything. You should be working as if I'm your supervisor. All right? It's not to say that you shouldn't have opportunities for breaks and whatnot, but I'm just saying be careful about a double standard because of an earthly supervisor that you've got. All right? Verse 6, Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Did you catch that in verse 6? Doing the will of God. The will of God is what? It's related to our work ethic. Our work ethic and the will of God, the way you do your work has to do with doing God's will. And then verse 7, With goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Ecclesiastes also has uh, something along these lines. Chapter 9, verse 10, first part of that verse says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. And then Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 says, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. There's lots of places that you can find in the Bible. These are just three of them that commend us to a high work ethic. An ethic that people recognize is is different. And they can see that God is with us, having to do with the way we do our work. Isn't that crazy? Proverbs 22.29 has something interesting to say about this. Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. We're seeing that happen in Joseph's life. Right? Somebody who does a good job, who has this godly work ethic, don't be surprised when that person's actually, I don't know, vice president. I, you know, I'm just saying, if you align yourself with God and that person has a work ethic that follows, God can move them into strategic positions. Don't be surprised if you see them in, in some powerful spots. Okay, Verse 4. Somebody when I'm reading Genesis chapter 39, verse 4. But Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made his over, made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. Here we have an example of Joseph being a faithful steward, right? A faithful steward. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 says this, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. I used to read this verse with, with some confusion. I used to read it this way. Moreover, it is found in stewards. Okay, i got to pull the people and we call them stewards. That one of them be found faithful. Isn't that ridiculous that I used yeah. to think that? All right, we got all these stewards of God. Hopefully one of them is faithful. Uh. That's not what it says. All right, What it actually means is if you are a steward of God and you are an I am, we need to be found trustworthy. We need to be found faithful. All right. See of application. Do you have responsibilities? Then be trustworthy. Do you have responsibilities? Then be trustworthy. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. And it goes something like this. 
the kingdom of God is like a man who is going to go on a trip and he decides to distribute to his servants his wealth while he's gone to, to, to manage it, to take care of it. And he ends up giving to one servant uh, five talents. All right? And you go, what is that? It's money. All right. Yeah, it's basically think $500,000. It's a lot of money. All right. So he gives to one of his servants $500,000. He gives to another servant two talents. Two, think of it as $200,000. And he gives to another servant one talent. $100,000, all right? And then he goes away. His expectation is, you guys take what I gave you and work with it. Do something with it, right? So the guy with five talents, by the time the man comes back, and the man is God, all right? By the time God comes back, he calls his servants to account for what he gave them and what they did with it. And he goes to the one that was given five. And he asks him, what'd you do? How, how'd that go? And the one with five says, you know what? I took you five, and I was diligent. I made it. I made five more for you. Recognizing it doesn't belong to him. It belongs to the master. Master was entrusting to him not to own it, but to take care of it as a good steward, right? And what's his commendation? His commendation is this. He, he received from the master this well-done, good, and faithful servant, right? We've all heard these words before. Well-done, good, and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things, like Joseph. I will make you ruler of many things as we're going to see with Joseph, okay? You've been faithful with a little bit. I'm going to trust you with more. Now, we go half a million bucks. That's a lot more than a little bit. In God's economy, half a million bucks is a little bit. All right, so anyway, he says, you've been faithful with a little. I'm going to trust you with much, all right? And same thing happens with the guy that was entrusted with two. He comes, he reports that he was able to double it, and, and the master says to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a little bit. I'm going to trust you with much. What has God given you? What is God entrusting to you and he is expecting you will take good care of, that you will parlay it into more? He's giving you eternal life. He's giving you good news, how to find forgiveness for your sins. How do you parlay that into more? You take it and you take it and you give it to somebody else. Can I tell you about eternal life? Can I tell you about forgiveness for your sins? Can I tell you how to receive salvation? And what happens? God comes back and he says, how were you able to do that? And you go, lives are changed. All glory to God. It's not mine. I, you know, you were just trusting me with it. It's all glory to you. More people are coming to the kingdom because of what you gave me. Right? That, and what are you going to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. But wait, there's a third servant who's only trusted with one talent. He was only trusted with one talent probably because the master knows that uh, this is the least trustworthy one, so we're only going to risk one talent with this guy. Right? So what happens? He goes, you know... I was kind of afraid, uh, thinking about the day you were going to come back. So, you know, I didn't want to lose your one talent. So I took it and I hid it. I buried it. Oh, mm, okay. Um, the master's a little upset with him. All right. He's a little upset with him because, here's what he says. He says to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. What, what? How does that apply in our lives? What's the challenge there for us? What's the warning? Well, maybe if the person who's given five talents, maybe that's the person who's up in front of the big crowds, right? Maybe that's the person who's doing the harvest crusade. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. All right, God entrusting him with much, and he opens his mouth, and, and people are getting saved by the tons. 
And then the one with two, maybe that's the person who's willing to tell their family and their friends, their co-workers. Maybe that's the one, anybody that'll listen, I'll, I'll tell you about Jesus. All right, You don't have the huge crowds, but they're still faithful in what they're doing. What's the one talent person? I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm going to keep it quiet. You know, it's just me. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't make anybody uncomfortable. You know, when God comes back, cool. I'm looking forward to the day God comes back because I get to go to heaven, but I don't care about anybody else. It's as if Jesus is saying, you could have at least raised your kids to believe in me. I could have had at least something out of it. And you kept it to yourself. Oh, ooh, wicked and lazy servant. I don't want to be called the wicked and lazy servant, right? <laughs> when we get to that day. Um, some of you might say, well, wait a minute, Jeff. It sounds like you're preaching a salvation by works. I mean, it sounds like it, it makes it sound like we got to do this. That we got to go out there and say these things or we're not saved. That if we want to be saved, we've got to do these things. Well, here's, here's what I would say to that. You don't get saved by doing good works. You don't. That's not your way to get to heaven. That's not your way to be right with God. You don't do good works to be right with God. You don't do good works to get saved. You don't do good works to find forgiveness. You do those things because you've been forgiven. God forgives you. You, you turn to God, you repent, and, and you submit your life to God, and God has, God has forgiveness for you. And then what happens? Those good works come out of the gratefulness of being saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, popular, popular passages, it's familiar to all of us. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. But the, you've heard me say this so many times. Verse 10, so many people cut it off right there after verse 9. They never look at verse 10. What does verse 10 say? For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Should we be doing good works? Yes. To get saved? No. Because we are saved, we should be doing good works. Seat of application that we have right there. Our purpose in life. Our purpose in life. To do the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You, you ever, If you ever hear somebody say to you in your presence, yeah, I just don't know what the purpose of my life is. I don't, I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> you say, I got the answer for you. I know what the purpose of your life is. God has prepared good works for you to do. That's the purpose of your life, to do those good works for themselves? No, it's to bring honor to God. All right? 2 Corinthians 13.5 gives us a warning. The warning would be, here's the warning. If you're not doing good works, are you saved? Uncomfortable, right? 2 Corinthians 13.5, the first half of the verse says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. It's not that we do good works to get saved, but we should be doing good works if we are saved. Verse 5, Genesis 39, verse 5. Somebody mind reading that one? So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. I want you to circle in your Bibles. If, if, you're, if you're not opposed to making notes in your Bibles, here's what I want you to do. See where it says, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house? Circle the word blessed. If you're comfortable writing in your Bibles, and I encourage you to do it, circle the word blessed. And then later on in that sentence, it says, and the blessing of the Lord was on, you can circle that word blessing over there. See that blessed and blessing. Who's getting the blessing? Who's getting blessed? In this verse, who is it that's getting Potiphar. blessed? Potiphar is getting blessed. Through whom? Joseph. Joseph. And through Joseph's relationship with whom? 
God. Joseph's relationship with God. Potiphar is getting blessed because of his association with Joseph and his relationship with God. This goes back to that ultimate promise that was made to Abram so long ago. Remember that? You'll be a blessing to everybody. All the world will be blessed through you. Did Abraham die? He did. Did the blessing stop? No. How did they continue? Through his family. Through his seed, right? So here we have the generations going forward. We have the seed of Abraham, and the world's getting blessed in a small microcosm right here, right? Potiphar's getting blessed. Who's going to get blessed next? If you know the story, who's the next person to get blessed because of association? Pharaoh. Who's going to get blessed because of Pharaoh's association with Joseph? The whole world, not just Egypt, the whole area of that that part of the world. We're seeing the fulfillment starting, right, way back in the day when Gen- when God was talking to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. What does that mean? Seed uh, seat of application for us. And this is not the first time I've used this one. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. I want that to show up more and more because I want it to be ingrained in all of us that God keeps his promises. Verse 6. This will be the last verse we look at today. Somebody might reading the first half of this verse. You're probably thinking, wait, where's where's the half? <laughs> so he left in Joseph's care everything he had with Joseph in charge. Excellent. And then uh, how about the next part? He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Excellent. Thank you. So here, picture this now. This is this is Potiphar's house. Potiphar has recognized that God is with Joseph. That Joseph, I'm blessed because of my association with Joseph and because of Joseph's association with God. Potiphar trusts to Joseph the whole house, right? Except for what? The bread which he ate. That's kind of weird. You would think if you trust the guy with your riches, you might let him at least, you know, do something with your bread. But who? Okay, whatever. Uh, Actually, there's an interesting rabbinic tradition that talks about that phrase, about the bread that he ate. And, And this rabbinic tradition is that that's a reference to his wife, and you're thinking, wait a minute, how is that correlation made? Mm-hmm. There's, there's an appeal to Exodus chapter 2, verse 20. And in Exodus chapter 2, verse 20, obviously that's the next book of the Bible. We're not there yet. But in Exodus chapter 2, verse 20, what happens? You have uh, Moses and his future father-in-law says to his daughters, invite that guy over for bread. And then the, right after that, he's marrying one of them. And so the rabbinic tradition is maybe here where, where it says that Potiphar trusted everything to Joseph except for his bread. It might be a, a hit of saying except for his wife. I'm just throwing that out there for you and do with it what you will. But then there's the next phrase. Do you see that last phrase? See what that one says? Mine says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you see that? That's the way the verse ends. What a weird way to end the verse. It's not even it's not even a different verse. It's not like verse 7 starts there. It's verse 6 ends there. Verse 6 ends there. That's kind of strange. Who cares? We weren't talking about his physical appearance and all of a sudden we are. Why are we talking about Joseph's appearance? Well, if the bread has to do with the wife. Oh, maybe the author's trying to tell us something's coming. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, regarding Joseph, this when something when the Bible dwells on somebody's personal appearance, especially when it's flattering, all right, it's not common. It doesn't happen much. We saw it with Rachel, and physical uh, attributes were given for David. Uh, if you were to uh, look in First Samuel chapter sixteen, verse twelve, outside of those, really rare that physical attributes or, or attractiveness would be emphasized in the text. And here we have it for Joseph that it's emphasized. Here's what I would say. Uh-oh. <laughs> All right? Uh-oh. Seed of application, your last one that you have there. Beware. 
whenever your attention is drawn to someone's physical attractiveness. And this could go for even conversations that are happening uh, with your coworker or whatnot. Hey, how was your week? And oh, I was having a great time. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, and she was. Mm, 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 mm. Or he was. Mm, 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 mm. You know, when it turns to physical attractiveness, beware. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. All right. So here we have an uh-oh. And it's going to lead into what we got coming next week. All right. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father. We pray that you would help us to be discerning and help us to be careful, Lord, about uh, places where we would tread with our, our thoughts and our language. Uh, we also pray, God, that you would help us to realize, as, as uh, you pounded into us in a way that we would receive, Lord, that you keep your promises. We thank you also, Lord, that uh, despite the depressing situations we might find ourselves in, it doesn't mean that we're beyond your care. It doesn't mean that we're forgotten or abandoned. It might mean that you're positioning us as participants in your plan. And we just pray that uh, we would be yielded to you. What would you have us to do? Where would you have us to go? What would you have us to say? We pray that you would go with us now, Lord, and uh, to be good stewards, to take your good news and what you've entrusted to us, salvation and forgiveness, and to take it to others. Lord, help us to one day hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right.